Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You are our special guest before the other special guests. Mm -hmm. The preview special guest. The preview special guest on this bonus episode of the TV Campfire. I'm just delighted to be here. And I love being a special guest, even if I'm like part A (laughs) of the special guest, like, you know, agenda. I mean, you're definitely part A. A guest. I don't know. I was going to go off on something there and then I kind of got lost. Part in my A thoughts. in your heart. Part A in my heart. <laughs> uh, this is a really exciting bonus episode. Mm-hmm. It is uh, September ish has been true crime month at ATX TV. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about true crime, watching a lot of true crime. And I got to do a special interview with Bill Curtis, which we'll talk about here in just a second. Mm-hmm. But before we get into it, the reason that you are here is because from Team ATX TV, you are the true crime aficionado. It is true. It is true. That is true crime facts. I definitely would not call myself a true crime expert. There's plenty of things that I have not delved into, but I do love a true crime and I get sucked into it. How much? Well, I guess I know you watch a lot of fictionalized crime shows as well, but how much of your overall viewing do you believe is in the crime genre? Oh, oh, I'm not sure. Like, uh, you can't hold me to this, so I'm going to okay, go 25%. Okay. Like, if we're kind of casting a wide net for the crime genre, because you're right, I do, I like a narrative, mm-hmm. I like an unscripted, I love a docu-series, little limited docu-series where you walk me through everything that happened, and then I prefer the ending to beautifully wrap up and someone to find some justice. The ones where that doesn't happen, it's very stressful. But, like, I like those. As someone who doesn't watch a lot of true crime... How many shows out there give you a nice wrapped up ending versus how many are like, here's this terrible crime that was committed. Don't know what happened. That is such a great question. I feel the like longer produced docuseries often have a conclusion. Like there's some kind of a thing that they're building towards because when they film those and when they're making them and they're producing them, like they work on those for like five, 10 years, like something super bananas. Like there's a lot of research for like a 2020 I don't know. It depends. Like when you get those kind of like crime of the week, we're going to talk to you about it for like a tight 30. Like a lot of the times it's kind of like, and then we never found out or, and then he got away or he never was convicted. To me, that feels very unsatisfying and And scary. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Period. (laughs) You're right. And I... uh, Oh, but I don't know. Sometimes it also feels like I'm still learning. Sometimes it's still interesting. Like there's just, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. So there's just a lot to see. I will say to have a cute tie-in, that's one of the reasons that the new Cold Case Files DNA Speaks is so satisfying because those cases, unlike original Cold Case Files, like those have been resolved through DNA. Which which was great. Has been helpful to me because I've watched now a number of these episodes mm-hmm. and I don't think that I can go back and watch the original cold case mm-hmm. files knowing many of them are unanswered but knowing that they have answers in this is helpful to me has been like a good spoiler alert going in yes so you're like okay like we're gonna hear about some terrible stuff but we know who did it yes yeah. and we know that that person is 
now behind bars or dead. Yeah. Or that one, yeah. Then, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a few I was like, mm-hmm. oh, it feels so unsatisfying when to it's... the victims' families and the people that were on the case. And I'm like, I get that. Yeah. You I understand that. Certainly never check out unsolved mysteries. Oh no, I will I never watch. Say. Nope. I nope. must say, strike that from your viewing list if that was on there. Cause like there spoiler alert, those are unsolved. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I would like though is a continuation how they're doing cold case files dna speaks of unsolved mysteries where they're like hey all those unsolved mysteries look we solved a few of them i agree i feel that that's a thing out there i feel if it's not something that someone has taken the time to make an extra little update to the series i feel that someone on the internet has probably like given you a breakdown i the sleuthing that happens on the internet is something i'm just in awe of like that's not something i've done but there are people on the internet like solving shit. You can say that. I'm, I just looked at everyone <laughs> and asked if I was allowed to curse with my eyes. And they said I was. Yeah, sure. Sure. <laughs> Disclaimer. Sure. I feel like people curse on our panels that we release. I. It's not until I'm being recorded or handed a microphone that I realize how much I curse in my regular speech. <laughs> it's a little unsettling when I actually hear it because you're just not aware of it until you're holding this big Just add the microphone. emotion to your words. Yeah. Well, I will say in watching these episodes, I then went out to walk Neville and everyone I passed, many neighbors that I know, I'm like, that person wants to kill me. That person wants to kill me. That person's going to kidnap me. That person's going to, I don't know, kidnap someone else. That person's breaking into my house right now. I was like, this is not good for my mind. I do think that that happens. And that is one of the reasons that I've never done like the full enchilada dump jump into like true crime because if I have too much of it or if I don't have a palate cleanser like that's why God invented new girls so you watch a bunch of true crime and then you just like pop on an episode of new girl before you go to bed because otherwise I have a like sliding glass door by my bed and I start to just like lay there nothing happens there's not a noise there's not a weird light but I'm like there's a murderer outside I know <laughs> there that there be. is there I must just be no in my heart I'm like there is a there is a being that is waiting to murder me. I just know this. Yes, of course. But if I watch like a New Girl episode, I don't worry about it. Then it's just yeah, like, everything's like, ah. great. Everything's fun. And yes. you're going to like go to a bar the next day and hang out with Nick Miller. And yes. life is going to be grand. Yes. 100%. Well, I think the thing that to me is the most disturbing about these episodes. I mean, I couldn't say the most disturbing. There's many disturbing things. But the amount of the criminals that... They're, they're just the crimes that are just random. Yeah. I uh, like a crime. <laughs> if we're going to rank crimes. If, if we must pick a crime. That there's a connection. Yeah. Because then, to me, there's a little bit more of a... This is so dumb because none of these things are avoidable. But in my head, it's like, oh, I, I can avoid that crime because I don't have a crazy ex blah 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 that yeah. is gonna like yeah come after me for revenge of someone else that i've never met and whatever that might be but when they're just random you can't you can't stop just random things it's so true i have to say i would be remiss if i did not say out loud couldn't tell you the actual specifics nobody google fact check me here but it is so much like however many infinitely times more likely that you're going to be a crime of someone you know than a random attack like the random attacks are infrequent and super weird, which is why they make excellent true crime TV 
in the truth is stranger than fiction, like it's so wild and it's not specific to a person. So you do put yourself like yep. it's a way to engage an audience. But statistically, I just don't think very likely. I'm sure someone listening to this is like, it is you're obviously <laughs> no, I I know that I'm correct. I believe I believe you're correct. Someone listening might be saying you're wrong, but I well, believe you're correct. then they should Google it because <laughs> whilst I cannot give you the number, I do know I'm right. I believe you. Thank I you. believe you. I am speaking with confidence. <laughs> so gosh darn it, it's true. Well, and that doesn't really circle us back, but I'm going to circle us back do to it. the intro that we're doing for my conversation that I had with Bill Curtis, mm-hmm. um, along with some of our members that got to listen in yeah. and ask questions. But I am familiar with Bill Curtis in a journalism over 50 years. Oh my gosh. Legendary journalist. Legendary. Many things. He is, for those that don't know, executive producer and narrator on Cold Case Files and Cold Case Files DNA, DNA Speaks. Speaks. Um, so it's very exciting to get to talk to him. Mainly, that's what I wanted to focus the conversation on because we're in True Crime Month. Uh, but I know you are a big fan of his. Yes. From different areas of his career. Yes. His current... I'm sure there are many other amazing things he's doing, but his current thing that you might know him from that I am particularly excited about, he is the co-host of NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, which is just great. And he has just such an amazing, distinctive announcer's voice, and he's so stellar as the announcer on that show. And I really like listening to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me on the weekends and like having a breakfast taco and just giggling at NPR because I am that basic bitch and it makes me really happy. Well, I just love that he has, I mean, I'm sure there's many in between, but two areas of a career that are so vastly different. Yeah. One that's obviously very dark and one that is light and fun. Mm -hmm. It's still educational, but I appreciate that he can have both of those parts of his career and that people are huge fans of him for both of those parts. Yeah. And sometimes it crosses over. Yeah. I agree. It was very interesting in a watching Cold Case Files DNA Speaks and hearing his voice in a I've seen Cold Case Files like the original ones but like because in my elder years I'm listening to Wait Wait Don't Tell Me it was hard to connect <laughs> that the man who introduces fun facts and guests on Wait Wait Don't Tell Me is also narrating Cold Case Files and I was just like I feel that I'm supposed to laugh or smile but this is really sad the Cold Case Files portion and I'm like I and my brain had to like quickly recalibrate well it's also because obviously it's the same voice but it's a very different tone yes of the voice yes So it is a little bit of a whiplash, especially because as I was prepping for this conversation, I was watching episodes and then I was listening to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Were you? I mean, separately, but within the same block of time, just to like get a feel. And Mm -hmm. then I was watching him on some interviews. Mm -hmm. Lovely man. I mean, lovely man. I mean. So anyway, I had such a good time doing this interview and I hope that people enjoy. I think they will. I can't wait for everyone to hear it. So with that, here's my interview with Bill Curtis. And don't forget to stream Cold Case Files DNA Speaks out now on Hulu. Get on there now after you've listened to the podcast episode. Bill Curtis, welcome to the TV Campfire podcast. We're very grateful to have you here. Uh, Good to be around the campfire for me. 
Can you feel it? It's very hot here in Texas. So <laughs> hoping you're in cooler weather than we've had here lately. Great. Great. I love to start off conversations like this with asking our guest, when did you first know your current career? Well, part of your current career as an investigative journalist was a career possibility and one that you wanted to have. It was 1966, uh, more than almost uh, 60 years, uh, when I arrived in Chicago as a new lawyer. I uh, graduated from law school about three months before that, uh, passed the bar, and accepted a job as a reporter. I had 10 years in broadcasting, a deep voice, and had decided that, uh, okay, instead of practicing law, I'm going to stay in broadcasting. And I, I landed right in the middle of the Richard Speck case. Uh, he had been caught, uh, but the city of Chicago was still chilled by the fear of having this madman on the loose. So the excitement level was just unbelievable. And I covered the trial uh, as a new, fresh, freshly minted uh, young lawyer. Um, they didn't really, in those days, have a lot of lawyers. Today, everybody's a lawyer, it seems like. And um, it was unbelievably interesting to me. From there, you know, I spanned, I guess I was a specialist that uh, CBS News threw me into to cons uh, cover the conspiracy trial, Charles Manson for 10 months, Angela Davis, uh, real uh, crimes. And, um, but it was starting there in 1966 when I thought, you know, it has all the elements that I really find interesting. One, it's a beginning, a middle, and an end as a story. It has investigation, which uh, I found valuable and I was trained for. Uh, as an example, um, I would go in to cover a trial, almost anyone. And I was the only uh, reporter on the on the um, on the reporting, you know, staff there that filed into. The, and I became friends usually with the prosecution. They couldn't talk to anyone else. There was always a gag order, but I seemed to know their language, and so it enabled me to be a jump ahead in covering the trial. And I was kind of inside the tent instead of trying to look outside the tent uh, at this uh, strange world of legal uh, jargon uh, that nobody understood except lawyers. Anyway, make a long story short, uh, I kind of fell in love with crime reporting. Before that time, before you got to Chicago, did you have a fascination with true crime or do you remember anything from your childhood that drew you in to that genre? Perry Mason. Um, most of the law students in those days, uh, watched that television show and, and the defenders, and it was as close, uh, you know, we weren't uh, involved in crimes ourselves, or even in a large enough population of a city to, um, accidentally rub shoulders with the gangsters and all. So, um, I was fresh and, uh, I, I had an opportunity to be on the scene of a tornado uh, in Topeka, Kansas. I gave the warning uh, being, being on the air, and that was really kind of a big break, but it was short of 
of the crime uh, genre. Well, you mentioned a few early on in your career of the true crimes that you covered. Do you have a first that you really felt that you took on as this was your first true crime story that you dug into and really took hold of? Well, it spans 60 years. And when I'm asked that question, uh, I often said, say, you know, it wasn't one particular crime, um, but rather the development, the evolution of DNA. Uh, because when a, there was no DNA involved. Uh, they didn't really know what they had in 1966 and Richard Speck. Uh, and it wasn't until the 80s when we started having a buildup of um, wrongful prosecutions and these crimes were being adjudicated to let them loose that uh, the, that with the development of the PCR machine, which allowed uh, a small sample of DNA to be amplified to the point where we could really use it in crime solving. Uh, it's all happened uh, in front of us uh, during our lifetimes. Uh, some people feel that uh, DNA and the use of law enforcement, um, you know, has been here all the time. And why didn't we do it just like fingerprints? Well, we didn't even have CODIS and the computer filled with DNA, like uh, the fingerprint uh, computer, uh, until, well, now we kind of uh, assume that let's just put it into CODIS and maybe solve it. Uh, actually, um, in answering the question, there was um, one particular case in Dallas. I had a producer there who was um, doing the, uh, who was working with the uh, Dallas police, and they offhandedly said, well, you know, that's a file. We don't even look at it. It's unsolved. And we give it to the short timers who are ready to retire, and they are meeting in the back room over there. What He said, what do you call it? And well, we, those are the cold case files. To our knowledge, that was the beginning of cold cases. And it dealt with uh, a, a murder uh, that had been unsolved. And all of a sudden, they these guys said, well, you know, we have this new DNA thing, and we also have a few um, uh, cases that are in this computer. Let's uh, put it through. And so they started a pattern that would be repeated uh, ultimately many times, feeding the DNA information into the computer, maybe the, the forerunner of CODIS, uh, the official. And it started to pop out a name, the name of somebody who lived upstairs to the victim who was murdered. Well, they looked further. He had a record. Um, they interviewed him. He confessed because the years had passed, and they solved the case. Lo and behold, I'm sure there must be other starting points, but it dawned on us, cold cases. Wow, that's a great title, a great repository of stories, more to come, but an unending source of material that television series can be based on in many forms, whether files or or other titles. And it almost has been a career in itself. 
Oh, absolutely. And that actually jumps to one of my questions on the term cold case. And you pretty much answered it there, but what the definition of a cold case is and when a case, is there a moment where a case officially becomes a cold case? Is there a point? I think I would define it as one that hasn't been solved. Um, a pretty simple uh, definition. Where does it become a cold case? When the police who have been assigned to the crime are told, we're going to take you off and we're going to put it into a file where once in a while you might go back and if, if you have a tip, if you have a lead, you can pick it up again, but we don't have the money to spend on you devoting your entire life to it. And what happens is that these detectives um, become, it becomes part of their lives. They're, they're so emotionally involved with the victim, children, um, terrible uh, atrocities, and they're so into the investigation that they never forget. They and the relatives, the grandmothers, who sit at home in a retired situation, watching their crime shows and wondering if perhaps my daughter, my son, would fit into that pattern. And now with DNA Speaks on Hulu, uh, we're finding those people. And so we almost say the grandmother solved it. The grandmother will pick up the phone. She has become, you know, very close friends with the detectives. They almost can speak in uh, shorthand. And uh, by golly. And then, of course, you come in now with the developments in DNA, genealogy DNA, which mm -hmm. means, well, let's throw it up to and build a family tree. Because what we've learned is that time heals, but time loosens tongues and hmm. the guilt begins to settle in on people especially uh, family members and it may be a family member who says oh my gosh what if he dies and gets away with it i'm going to come forward because i know something the kennedy assassination is uh, much the same not necessarily with dna but here is a recently a Secret Service agent who is there on the car um, next to Kennedy, sees and he feels the impact of a bullet blowing the back of his brain out, and but was not allowed to give testimony before the Warren Commission. I had found that out along a number of um, stories. <laughs> Um, part of series and otherwise about the Kennedy assassination. There are about a thousand books that are written on it. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked. It was the boss of the Secret Service who testified, not an eyewitness, uh, no closer than his people who were, uh, and he didn't want didn't want them to testify because they had been partying until five o'clock the morning before there you go wow. uh, i witnessed to history one thing leads to another so to make it relevant to uh cold cases and dna 
the telling of a crime story, whether a background or an eyewitness, is so interesting that uh, you can't stop thinking about it. Well, and that's, I know you've spoken about this iteration of cold cases, the DNA Speaks. You're really focused on the victims and their stories and who they were, the people that loved them, and the de these detectives and law enforcement agents. With as many cold cases as there are, for these law enforcement agents and detectives, do most of their careers, is there... Is this like the only cold case that they really have that sticks with them forever? Or do most of their careers have a handful of cold cases that haunt them for years? Sometimes it's the only one because, especially in the early days, um, law enforcement, police departments, they have a budget. Uh, they have only a few people, really, to solve crimes and to go out and uh, make traffic uh stops so it's the acquisition of experience trial and error one that leads to another keeping track of the development of new technology that uh, makes a good cold case to get any person i was so moved by this i uh, eventually uh, wrote a book called the death penalty on trial and uh, it was in the 80s that uh, I picked up a couple of cases um, where uh, one certainly was a DNA. And along comes a lawyer. And the lawyer had become an expert in the use of DNA and walks in almost like I did in the early days when I was the only one who understood the, uh, the legal language of covering trials. He knew uh, exactly what to do. Pulls out the DNA. Now, how did he get it? Um, the tip is from one of our shows and a Canadian detective who said, well, it's always in the box. In the box, what do you mean? Um, that if evidence is gathered initially well, it is preserved and you put it into a filing system and that's his box. You have the stained, blood-stained well, uh, to give you an example, in Richard's Bay, the blood stain sheets and clothing. So you have the DNA in the in the blood stains. Uh, they didn't have the DNA tools to use it then. But um, so the lawyer goes in and finds, okay, what do we have? Um, he went to, it was a bite mark case. And a man was sentenced to death and was sitting on death row. Um, based on a bite mark that they had compared with the bite mark on the victim. Well, he finds DNA, runs the test of the DNA, and finds it matching um, a person in prison. He'd been there for a sexual crime or murder uh, down the road at Florence, Arizona, and um, came back, solved the case, sprung the guy, um, from after 10 years sitting on death row. So we now have wonderful schools where a lot of people, not having Perry Mason to watch, they have all these <laughs> cold case files to watch. They want to be that science um, DNA expert. And so they will come in and routinely, well, and the Innocence Project um, that came 
with uh, the uh, O.J. Simpson case. Uh, you know, suddenly we find out this is a real thing in science and was able to uh, be significant in uh, finding O.J. Simpson innocent. And from that point, it's kind of a growth point. Um, we now have a lot of people. But I'm, I'm sitting next to a, um, a, a lot of people who have become expert in the use of DNA. But you'll be surprised. I was sitting at a, at a dinner of awarding the Chicago police. And uh, it was next to uh, the uh, new superintendent. And I said, hey, how about this genealogy uh, DNA? Are, are you guys using it? He said, uh, genealogy DNA? Uh, what's that? And you realize, wow, you know, we deal with it every day, deal with the stories every day, and yet it's not a household word to these people. So, Right. Would uh, you think that it would be at this point in time, especially with so many different sites? That yeah, they certainly have the cases mm -hmm. where it would be applicable. So I started thinking, and I'm actually working now, questioning their investigations and, and detectives and say, you know, we will see um, a, first of all, we're overrun now with gunshots and uh, gun violence crimes. Um, we will see all the little tabs with numbers on them evidence marking where they found a cartridge having just fired a, a nine millimeter automatic pistol and they are littered look like they're littered but they're very carefully placed where they were found as they stop traffic on the dan ryan expressway and have it backed up for six hours while they do the investigation and i said didn't somebody have to load that into a gun, meaning their fingers are on it, and perhaps the DNA on it. Well, haven't had a good answer yet, but at least they're taking the question <laughs> at least uh, the seriously. Question yeah, so it's developing and makes for a very good story. How much of your day-to-day, -day, and I'm sure it's ebbed and flowed over the years, but is immersed in true crime and in working these cases and even as you're producing the show just being involved in this space well when you're producing a show you you need to assemble elements and uh, you go as close to the crime as you possibly can is there an eyewitness uh, has someone been convicted um now Early on, the FBI wouldn't talk to anybody because they didn't want to pollute the trial. Um, and that's still the case for a lot of law enforcement. On the other hand, when they're hot and heavy in looking for, let's say, the, uh, the shooter that they spent 13 days on uh, just recently, um, they want to broadcast to a wider audience, spread the net. So they will call the media and say, look, we have some information. Uh, you know, can you alert the citizenry? And in building those relationships, they begin to trust you. Uh, law enforcement has to trust somebody because you can't get the information they want to keep quiet because uh, they still have a jury and a trial to go through. 
uh, and have you blow that. So we have a very good reputation uh, in not becoming part of the law enforcement, um, but we're there for a purpose, and that's to tell this story of how law enforcement worked, how the system worked. And so these days, um, the, the old rule, which was we're not going to talk about the case until it's adjudicated and we have a verdict and somebody is in jail, still holds true. But with elements within, well, I'll give you an example. There is a new DNA uh, machine taking the little PCR like this, building a machine kind of as big as a bread box that can now reduce the time of inspecting from weeks to 90 minutes. Wow. Uh, I said, hey, that's revolutionary. Let me do it. Well, there we're still negotiating because they don't want to blow it and we all we all it, it it also brings us to is dna we we now accept it as the ultimate truth um but it's not necessarily you and if you're a defense attorney you have to run your own dna otherwise there may be a call from the detective down to the state lab and he says, you know, I, I really need that DNA test because we're going to go to trial and uh, I, I'm putting the, the, the evidence together and we can really nail this guy. But, you know, I, I need for you to kind of come up and, and it shouldn't be. I hope it's not. I hope it's not um, uh, inconclusive. <laughs> That's a word they don't <laughs> like to hear. Well, some, yeah, if 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 the decision is subjective and you're turning on is it conclusive or inconclusive, there's no no additional machine that says that gives you the answer. Now uh AI may along here's another problem with AI. Um if you really want an answer like that, where and when? Does it make the decision to say, well, yeah, I, I think that's the guy. Uh, let's go with it. There you are. Um, and so unless you have an independent DNA study, you have an inconclusive DNA that may result if you run it down the line and use it in court uh, in a mistake. Being so immersed in this world, and it sounds, I mean, not only are you immersed in the cases, you're immersed in how they're solving the cases and the evolution and spreading this technology and asking people, why are you not using this? This is how you can use it better. How do you turn this off at the end of the day? Are you able to separate and forget thinking about it for a minute? Because, I mean, the cases that you're being surrounded with are so sad and so horrific. How, how do you live the rest of your life? Well, you have a lot of uh, stories to do if you're a production company, so you can kind of clear your head that way. But there are stories, and there's always one or two that uh, are unsolved, uh, that are mysterious, that you may have a lead, 
and you want to check it out. And I remember early on, uh, we came upon, and it was the Cold Case uh, series on A&E, and I called our executive producer, Laura Flurry, and I said, you know, they just don't have the money to run a DNA sample and, uh, you know, a test. Can we pay $7,000 to have, we just put it in our budget, and so we'll know. And and the answer was no, because we don't get want to get involved that deeply. Well, I always, rem, you know, say, well, can't we find a way? The but then we become part of the law enforcement process. Now, the problem with a prosecutor and a, and a prosecutorial effort is that is called telescopic or telescope thinking, where you're just concentrating on your side of the story. And you're accumulating, acquiring evidence that fits your profile. What if it shouldn't fit your profile? Are you conducting enough of an investigation into the possibility that there's another side of the story? <laughs> and that is one problem in wrongful convictions. They stop thinking. Hey, we have enough. That uh, that does it. Let's go to court. He's guilty. Then you get in court, and this is what I want to deal with in, in the book, and it's a matter of salesmanship. The, the lawyers won't like me for saying this. <laughs> the prosecutor presents a case, usually circumstantial. I mean, it's always almost circumstantial. If it isn't, it never gets to trial. And you piece together like building a house. And you build a house, one of the defense lawyers say, we're building a house here. And we have a window, we have a floor, we have maybe even a roof. But we don't have that fourth wall. And we're going to ask you, the jury, that based on all the circumstantial evidence we have presented, what's the most likely result uh, if we build that fourth wall? We think it is guilty as charged. And we ask you to come in with a verdict that uh, speaks to that. A lot of the cases where the wrongfully accused are railroaded through is when the fourth wall isn't as you describe it. So then the defense um, is, should come in, look at the circumstantial evidence, present the possibility that there is a reasonable doubt. And it's also possible that uh, his salesmanship is such that you let a guilty person go. But uh, uh, I, I keep hoping that the guy is innocent. And um, we, we come into this, it's really a journey to find the truth. Uh, we, we call it an adversarial system. Prosecution presents their case, defense presents their case. And a lot of these wrongful um, uh, convictions result from a prosecutor getting so involved, so dedicated, with a passion to find what he believes is the right, that he may withhold a piece of evidence that could possibly 
create that reasonable doubt. Well, when the judge finds out, he said, nope, you got to redo the case, redo the trial, or let him go. One of the cases that uh, I feature in the book, I, I, I picked two and then followed back these cases to the point where what went wrong in the trial? Um, what, what mistake was there to come to the wrong verdict, which resulted in the death penalty for these before they were released? And um, a guy, a husband, pulls up to a, uh, a kitchen, and the woman inside testifies that, oh, it's Jake uh, is here. Uh, Jake just pulled up. I'll call you back. That was not allowed in court. It was hearsay. Uh, and for one reason or another, the prosecutor, who was very, very good, argued that, no, we should not allow that in court. Well, the kid was convicted, put on death row. That one little phrase opened, would have opened another possibility that the case could have been different. It was a husband arriving, and the next part was that we find the bloody bodies of his wife uh, in the kitchen. And uh, prosecution argued conclusively that uh, it was a third party who came in and killed them. Wow. So so, wow. so you have to be good. <laughs> um, I know. And, we... and I'm, I'm sorry. On, on, no, on keep the going. On the, on the death penalty cases, too, uh, you have about eight reasons why <laughs> truth is not done. One of them is incompetent uh, lawyers. Back in the 80s, there weren't enough, and usually in small venues, there aren't enough death penalty cases uh, to establish an expertise. And so they'll give it to the first uh, guy who's out of law school because nobody wants to spend any time on it. And to have him come in as the big defense attorney, well, they don't know what they're doing most of the time. And um, it results in imperfect investigations uh, uh, and mistakes. While, on the other hand, the prosecution is being paid by good money, by the state. They're hotshot lawyers. They're going to become governor, hopefully, based on, uh, you know, the state's attorney. And they have a staff, uh, especially in federal court, the United States of America, you know, versus so-and-so, uh, -so, uh, up against this uh, poor kid who does not do a good job, maybe a public defender. And so poverty comes into play. Um, poverty among the lawyer, in addition to the perpetrator. Uh, and I just found that there are too many mistakes. So even talking to almost anyone who's in a prosecutorial position uh, and saying, you know, I'm going to say, that we should abolish the death penalty because it's too easy to make a mistake. Wow. It's an imperfect. Now, 
it's the best we can do to come to a conclusion, but why kill somebody? And you won't have the chance to make it right years down the line. And we are seeing now guys walking out after 20, 30 years, many of them from DNA. But uh, also, another witness comes forward to say, you know, that was wrong. I, and, or uh, the lawyer working hard enough, and, and, and I come to tears thinking of these defense lawyers who work years and can't uh, get it out of their head, um, who find that there was a mistake. Some evidence was withheld. Was it withheld on purpose? Maybe. Uh, if not, it would have rendered a different verdict. And the law is, is coming to grips. Nobody wanted to stand up and say, hey, we're imperfect. Let's do away with the judicial system. No one but, wants to say that about anything. <laughs> anything. Um, but it's kind of a roundabout way of uh, correcting the system. Well, I know with this, there's... DNA at the top of the list, too. Countless, countless stories to tell, countless TV shows to make. We always like to end with any special guests on wrapping up. Are there other TV shows that you're watching and loving in the true crime genre or just something that you like to use as an escape at the end of the day? No. <laughs> i've got plenty to think about and watch uh, myself and i'm not critical of them uh you know just like on a real case you have to stay with it to see the inside and it may turn a thousand times on subjective decisions a lawyer has to make um you have to be inside there to know was that right or was that wrong? It's the same with producing a television show. Did you interview enough people? Did you interview the right ones? Were you motivated by a friendship with the prosecution uh, versus the defense? Did you tell enough of the defense side? You know, all these questions. So um, I'm not critical of others or I don't go home until my days. <laughs> You know, and some some of these uh, crimes are so horrible, you, you want to get away from it. Absolutely. Well, we are loving watching DNA Speaks and having these crimes solved. It is a nice wrap up. It does make you feel better at the end of the day yes. to watch yes. these crimes being solved. So thank you so much for chatting with me. And, uh, um, you know, everyone knows they can watch cold case files on dna speaks on hulu and we look forward to speaking to you again soon well, i hope so you know you got me going i, didn't I know, know i I'm, love it endless uh, stories i, I, I would say so, well i don't have anything to say uh, you know <laughs> i know we could keep going i only got half my questions but that's okay well <laughs> you know it's my life my mm -hmm. career are the stories i've told absolutely that's my life and it. my memoir Yes. <laughs> thank you so much. It's so much appreciated. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it. You have been listening to the TV Campfire Podcast, hosted by ATX TV co-founders Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarlane, and produced by Jennifer Morgan. This conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 12 in Austin, Texas, between June 1st and 4th, 2023. 
For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com. <laughs>